going to talk back to me. <laughs> so uh, Brent and Ben, I'm going to disciple them how to talk back to a brother. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be here. Um, I'm really grateful uh, to be able to be here to worship with you uh, this morning. Um, we definitely, I definitely don't take it lightly uh, being here. Uh, I'm very grateful for Ben and Brent and uh, the team for bringing me in um, this morning to preach God's word. And I'm so glad to see so many, di- so many different friends like Amber and Jared and boy Drew and all these wonderful friends, my homies that just walked in. So good to be here. So if you would, I would like to call your attention this morning to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. That's all good. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I would like to call your attention to consider with me when history repeats itself. When history repeats itself. I'm going to begin reading back, actually meet me, verse 4, 32. Pick, up, pick me up in verse 4, 32, I mean chapter 4, verse 32. And this is the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was said, or was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of, son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Pick me up in chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself Some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, and she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out immediately. 
she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Conclude in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I invite you to pray with me really quickly. Oh, God, I pray this morning, Lord, I come before you humbly as I know how, Lord, just thanking you for the wonderful worship that has taken place. I do invite you, Holy Spirit, to make your presence known this morning. I invite you to think through my mind and to speak through my lips the words that you would have us know, say, and do. Get glory in this place. It's through Jesus I pray. Amen. So some time ago, I was uh, talking with one of my friends, Heath Carter, who is a professor of history at Valparaiso University in Chicago, Illinois. And I was asking Heath about history. I was writing an article titled, History Matters or Does It? I wondered, if history matter, what, what, what place does it have in the present? And I asked Heath his thoughts, and he shared with me this. He said, history matters because it's the story of how we got here. It helps us understand and reflect on past human life and can inform serious moral and ethical reflection about how we should move forward. If we don't know our history, we will fail in the present. See, one of the main warnings that he gave me was this. If we don't understand the failings of the past, we will repeat the same failings in the present. If we don't understand the failings of the past, we will repeat the same failings in the present. And so, we come to the book of Acts, a history. But this is not just any type of history. This is what Dr. Willie Jennings, a great commentator out of Yale Divinity School, he says that what we have is a honest history. And here we have this honest history of history repeating itself. We have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is a mirror image, as it were, of the story in Joshua chapter 7 of our dear brother Achan back in the day when he had, uh, had some misdealings with things that were devoted to the Lord. And here Luke, as he was the great historian or the great theologian of the early church, Luke gives us a comparison and a contrast of two histories. One of the history that came before in the story of Barnabas and the history of Ananias and Sapphira. But it's just not enough for us to visit history and to read history, no. But we must wrestle with the question, what lessons do we learn from this repeated history? What lessons do we learn from this repeated history? And so, very quickly, or not, I'm a brother and I'm a Baptist preacher, so we go kind of long, but very quickly, I want us to 
look at four lessons from this repeated history. Four lessons from this repeated history. Lesson number one. God always interrupts what Satan wants to disrupt. God always interrupts what Satan wants to disrupt. And I did some slides for you this morning. I know we got some note-taking saints in here, so I tried to make it easy for you. So we got some slides right here for you for us to consider these lessons. Now, if you would, meet me back in verse 1. But a man, in verse 1 of chapter 5, but a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, in this story, we dive as Luke wants us to do, we dive in to what God is doing in this story. See, when we come to the book of Acts, we come to the history of the early church. And one of the things we see in the early church is an explosive movement of the Spirit of God. God is shaping and transforming a people, reorienting the narrative of Uh, segregation, the narrative of oppression, the narrative of disintegration of a people, and he's shaping and forming a new people by a new reality. And so we see in this explosiveness in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Ghost comes with fire and tongues descend as it were, and now in such a new language, now God is doing a new thing in gathering a people. But when God is doing this new thing, Satan is close behind. And so how in the world does Satan disrupt? How does Satan disrupt what God is doing? We get it right here. Satan disrupts what God is doing through the sinful actions and the sinful thought of Ananias and Sapphira. See, the positive picture, a lot of times we, we kind of sanitize the early church as if like the the, the early church in Acts was the magnum opus of what God wants us to emulate as Christians. Though I think uh, it was irrevocable what God is doing, the church in Acts was not immutable. It was irrevocable because God was doing a new thing, but they were not immutable. They were a bunch of broken, busted, and disgusted brothers and sisters like we are, trying as best they can to reorient their reality by the reign of God. And so we come to this couple who kept back some of their proceeds. And Peter confronts this couple in their sin, and he confronts their sinful thought and actions, but behind this sinful thought and action, Peter attributed to Satan. He says this in verse 3. He says, Peter said to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the proceeds. F.F. F. Bruce says this in his 
commentary on Acts. He says, the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Yet, God interrupts what Satan wants to disrupt by judging Ananias and Sapphira immediately. In verse 5 and verse 10, God confronts them very immediately. It's kind of, it's different than what we see in Scripture. A lot of time, God, God delays his judgment. But God comes here in this moment, and God's judgment is immediate, and God's judgment is final. We cannot miss this. Many are uncomfortable when we come to this text. It feels weird to us for God to immediately kill someone when they're sinning. We're like, God, you're doing the most. Uh, doing the most. He, he, he's, he's doing too much. He, he's, what is doing the most? He, he, he's going up exceedingly above all we can ask or think of God's judgment. He's doing the most. But we can't miss this. In God's judgment, we see two things, the gravity of their sin. But also, we see the care of God for his plan and his purpose in his church. And so God confronts and God interrupts what Satan wants to disrupt. Second lesson we learn. What you do with what you have tells a lot about who you are and what you want. What you do with what you have tells a lot about who you are and what you want. Turn to your neighbor and ask them, what do you want? What do you want? See, as we have looked at God and Satan, looked at it through the lens of, of them, now let's kind of go down in on the lens of Ananias and Sapphira. See, to all appearances, from our standpoint, if we were there at that time, we would say that Ananias was doing a great thing. Him and Barnabas both sold property. Both brought some of the proceeds, brought the proceeds of their selling to the apostles and both committed it to their disposal. But the only difference between Barnabas and uh, Ananias is that Barnabas brought all and Ananias brought some. And so what we see here is a double sin right here in Ananias and Sapphira. Dishonesty and deceit. See, Luke says that in verse 3, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to keep back part of the money? He kept back part of the money. And see, it's very easy for us to miss what Luke is getting at in telling us that he kept back some of the money. 
But Dr. Jennings, Dr. Willie Jennings, says this. He says, the withholding is indeed the offense, and it signifies resistance to the new order where possessions will no longer divide and establish social hierarchies, and where living by faith overcomes the worship of other gods, namely money and possessions. What Ananias and Sapphira did with what they had told a lot about who they were and what they wanted. Now, what did they want? See, Ananias and Sapphira are so many times just like us. They wanted credit and prestige for seeming, seeming sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. See, they wanted to make Ananias and Sapphira great again. But they didn't want to redefine greatness and do what it takes to pay the cost to live a life of true greatness, of true sacrifice, of true Christianity. But they wanted to disrupt, even in themselves, the plan of God. They, as the church, was marked by sacrificial generosity, as the church was marked by people voluntarily coming and bringing their, their proceeds and using their power and their privilege for justice for others to help the brother and the sister to be an apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus in their actions. They were putting Jesus back in the grave. See, there's a grave danger in perverting the blessing and the grace of God to seem more than we actually are. See, they were doing a good thing. They were doing God's work. And so many times I even feel this in my own self. When people start calling on you, when people ask you to write this and to write that, to preach here and to preach there, I'm more like Ananias and Sapphira than I would love to admit. So many times we pervert the blessing of God to seem more than we actually are. We send money to Africa but we don't even talk to the African-Americans in America. Come on, somebody. We have this grand plan for a beautiful vision of an inclusive people, but it's not worked out in our vision and our mission and our values. In our own personal life, we say that we want to be a people concerned about truth and justice, but we sacrifice our orthopraxy on the altar of orthodoxy. I can quote Reformed theologians, but I'm not living a Reformed life. We pervert the blessing of God 
to serve our own ends. As one pastor says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. (laughs) It's okay. God loves you. The spirit is present. He is working. That's the first, our first lesson is God always disrupts, but Satan want to interrupt. Our second lesson is what you do with what you have tells a lot about who you are and what you want. And our third lesson, history lesson that we learn, is that in the Christian community, there is always a tension between a theology of the kingdom and a theology of the empire. Now, this is a little nuanced, but I think if you would let me paint a picture for you, I think this will be powerful for us. See, let's step back a little bit, and let's look where Acts was written from. See, the book of Acts takes place in empire, the Roman empire, that is. And this is a fact that we cannot let escape our attention. See, the goal of the Roman Empire was to shape and fashion and form the world in its own image. As Justo Gonzalez notes, he says Romans understood their civilization task was precisely the citification of the world. For them, the greatest human creation was precisely the city life through their empire. See, that city life came with a cost as people in that city life was displaced by the expansion of large agricultural states that served the markets of the city. And so those people on the outside, those small farmers, had the choice that is no choice at all. Either come under Roman control and farm for your new masters or join the displaced masses in the city. See, such a vision was built on exploitation, on oppression, on selfishness, on greed, on pride, on militarism, on materialism. And thus, life under the empire was always life under the threat of assimilation and transformation through the weakening or even the loss of cultural identities and religious sensibilities. And so in Ananias and Sapphira, we see that the tension that exists in the church in living out either the reign of God or living out the reign of Rome. See, for in this picture, in Ananias and Sapphira, in the context of living out the spirit reality, they in their life, in the context of the church, embodied the reign of Rome in their selfishness, in their deceit, in their pride, in their idolatry, in their hypocrisy, rather than living like the early church of 432 through 37, where they lived under the reign of God, living out unity and generosity and justice and truth. They, as Luke does so masterfully, they were a comparison and a contrast. 
They were living under a theology of the empire, living under uh, the reign of Rome, embodying in their life a selfishness and a deceit, contrary to the spirit-filled reality that we find earlier in the early church, marked by the reign of God in Jesus, creating a new humanity. You know, this is instructive for us. This is instructive of what we mean by spiritual. See, a lot of times if we look at Ananias and Sapphira, we would say they were pretty spiritual people. A lot of times we associate spirituality with a sacrificial giving or sacrificial life that seems to be sacrificial in public. We, we, we associate spirituality with coming to church, doing things for God. We associate spirituality to singing the latest Bethel or Hill song. But this shows us a different picture of spirituality. In God's thought, spirituality was not just doing things for God, but spirituality is living under the reign of God. And what is the reign of God? Living a life under the uh, power and the purpose of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world and completing the story of the resurrection. See, as Justo Gonzalez shares in his book, Manana, Christian Theology, from a Hispanic perspective, which you should get, spirituality is first of all a living in the gospel, making faith the foundation of life. And it is also living out the gospel, making faith the foundation of action and structure. And so on this basis, Being spiritual means living out the future that we have been promised. It is lived out of an expectation, lived out of a goal that God is really doing a new thing, that God is really shaping and forming a new reality for a new people. And we are those manana people who are living out the reality of tomorrow today. And so to have the Spirit, as some of our Pentecostal friends would say, to be baptized in the Holy Ghost with fire, is to have a foot upon the future and to live now as those who are animated by the new reality predicated on the reign of God. And so this indeed is relevant for us today. See, many in the American church, if we're honest, many of us today, if we would ask that question that Jesus asked, who do they say I am? If we would reflect and put the mirror on ourselves and ask the world, who do they say We are, many today would say the American church 
is living more from the reign of America rather than the reign of Jesus. See, we are living under a theology of the American empire rather than a theology of the kingdom of God. See, but how so? It's not enough to say that, but I got to actually put some feet on that. How, how is this lived out? I hope you would consider this. It's really lived out three ways. It's lived out individually. It's lived out interpersonally. And it's lived out institutionally. How is the American mind divided? Our mind is first divided individually. See, in America, we are more shaped by the ideologies of Rome than the ideology of the kingdom of God. So you have to look no further than the socio-political context or the makeup of our churches to see that we are a people who live from the ideology of individualism, that life is all about me, of materialism, that the chief end of man is the glory of myself in my uh, materials that I have, and we live as a people who's more about people saying, look at us, look at what we're doing, rather than being a blessing and being tied to the vocation of the people of God. If we look at our personal and corporate discipleship, Individually, we only want the Romans to be shaping us. And we think that we in the evangelical conservative context are the hope of Christian America. If we think about where we are as a nation and what we represent as Christians in this nation, we will see that our minds are divided. We would rather be shaped and rather live from the individualistic life of American ideology rather than the sacrificial life animated by the Spirit. But we're not only living out the reign of Rome just individually. We're also living it out interpersonally. Our existence as Christians today is more reflected of the selfishness and segregation rather than sacrifice and service. 86% of American churches are homogenous. They only reflect one racial context. In America, Our churches seem to be the church only for middle class or upper class. And those whom are in the lower class are pushed to the margins. 
Our relationships are more reflective of skepticism and accusation of the other and putting those in the in-group and putting others in the out-group rather than living as the community of God of realizing that God wants to create a free space where I fully belong to you and you fully belong to me and we fully belong to God and we fully belong to his mission in the world. It's not just socially. It's not just politically. It's not just relationally or gender. That's also denominationally. We got Christians out here being Floyd and Conor McGregor behind screens, arguing about doctrine rather than coming together. And I'm not saying, listen to me, I'm not saying that doctrine is not important. I'm preaching. So I'm preaching some doctrine, and I'm in seminary, and we're in church, so it's important. But a lot of times we have raised doctrine over and above the doctrine. We have raised the doctrine of theology over and above the doctrine of community. We want to talk about the doctrine of God and talk about predestination and all of these things, but we do not want to talk about bringing theology to the ground where we dance with one another and invite others to the dance and dancing together in this world as the community of grace. But it's not just on the interpersonal level, but it's also on the institutional level. See, Rome did not distribute power and privilege to the least of these. They were built on exploitation. They only told the Roman story. They only represented the Roman core concerns. And that's so much like us in the American church. We have a miscarriage of power and privilege in our world. We are so bent on just telling the white evangelical narrative that the diverse community of faith is not even considered. We would think that the only, that the epitome of a Christian is a middle class white evangelical rather than realizing that yes, that is the epitome of a Christian but also the epitome of a Christian would be the one who find themselves in Augusta, Georgia. Maybe the epitome of the Christian is the one who find themselves on the street. But in our American narrative, we don't want to subject ourselves to them and be discipled by them. We want ourselves to be discipled by ourselves and forget everybody else. There's a crisis all over the land. And it seems that we are more like Ananias and Sapphira, embodying a theology of the empire, living beautifully under the reign of Rome, rather than embodying the theology of the kingdom, living under the reign of God. But God. See, when we come to Ananias and Sapphira, when we come to any history, we have a choice that we can make 
We have a choice either to repeat the history or we have a choice to unlearn some things, relearn some things, and live a new history under the renewed reality. And so lastly, we learn this, that a history repeated is not a history without hope. A history repeated is not a history without hope. See, the church before in 4 through 37, 32 through 37, presented us with the picture of their sacrificial living, their giving, their, their theology, their, 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 their life, their, their reorienting the way that they lived in community. They embodied the reign of God, and the Bible says that great grace was upon them, that they lived as the Jewish Messiah, full of grace and full of truth. And in their living, as Karl Barth would so famously say in his uh, commentary on Romans, he says that in, in regards to the Roman Christians, which would be true of the Christians that found themselves in chapter 4, 32 through 37, he says that the resurrection has proven its power. There are Christians even in Rome. And so their living was an attestation to the reality of God's resurrection power. In this community, they were of one heart and they were of one soul, not just agreeing on disputed matters, but regarding one another's needs as their own. They were living as our great Jesus, who came not as a king, though he was, but he came as a poor, penniless preacher to identify with the broken and to identify with those whom were marginalized. And he came and he brought the reign of God, inaugurated the reign of God in this reality, preaching the gospel to the poor, preaching the gospel to the oppressed, preaching the gospel to those who were the people of Israel. But the gospel just wasn't for them either. Jesus was one who was embodying uh, the reality that he wanted the oppressor and the oppressed. That he was coming to shape a new reality. He was coming to give his life for the one who exploited for Ananias and Sapphira to give his life for the church to create a new family. And this repeated history was not a history without hope. And you know, I'm closing. I'm on the plane down. I'm on the plane down. No, 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 I'm gone. I'm about out of here. <laughs> but I can keep going if you want me to. <laughs> no, I can, I can keep on preaching. In this reality, this history repeated, because it's not a history without hope. We see this, that we can either view this history as an obstacle or we can view it as an opportunity. And we must wrestle with this question. When history repeats itself, and indeed it will, 
history in your life, history in my life, will repeat itself. But the question we must wrestle with is what will be told of us? What will be told of us? Well, Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this reality of a history that repeated itself. Lord, where you disrupt what Satan wants to interrupt. Lord, you show us that we must live under your reign. That you care and you are passionate about the way that your church lives out its reality. It's not our reality, Lord. This is your reality. Lord, we're living from the reign of God. So, Lord, I pray that as history repeats itself, I pray we will find ourselves on the right side of history. And that is on your side. And that we will participate in what you are doing in this world. And bring in healing and wholeness, redeeming and restoring. Make it so. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.